Good morning. Um, I don't know how capable I, capable I am to speak, uh, but I'm thankful this morning uh, to be able to speak. When I got up this morning, I did not have a voice. Um, my cold in the first of the semester has finally caught up with me in this weather. Uh, but thankfully, uh, we made it here, and uh, I am with RUF, which is a campus ministry that this denomination and church supports, if you've never heard of it. Um, I would encourage you as a church to keep sending students to Western and let them stay more than a year. Uh, so There are more important things than college. We all know that. So No, um, no college is important, so send your kids uh, our way. Second Timothy chapter four. Um, this is at the end of one of the last uh, letters that Paul wrote. Uh, if you're new to the church or new to Christianity, you've probably heard of this guy named Paul. You may have not always heard good things about Paul. Uh, you may have heard great things about Paul. Uh, I'd encourage you sometime to look at his story uh, in the book of Acts, um, who he was and who he became through Jesus. But uh, this is toward the end of his ministry. He's in a jail cell, um, and uh, he's writing this to uh, Timothy, who he's, he's more or less passing the baton off to, uh, and you see that all through the letter. But we're just going to look at verses 6 through 8. Uh, I studied this with a group of uh, upperclassmen last year, Fridays at 7 in the morning. Sometimes it was just me. Um, no, they came pretty consistently, but uh, it was a beautiful thing to study this letter to Timothy. Um, and this passage, uh, of all the passages, other than the one about Timothy's timidity, uh, stuck with me the most, and so I've, I've been wanting to uh, preach it. So, verse 6 in chapter 4 of Second Timothy, hear God's word. Paul writes, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought a good fight. Uh, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the privilege and the joy that it is to sing with these other believers, to have our eyes cast upon the cross, upon, upon the day that death will be crushed, uh, what, a, what a joy, Lord. And as we come to this time to open your word, I pray, God, that it would be beneficial for your people, that it would build them up and equip them for the week ahead, that it would not be the only word that they get this week, but it would at least start them off uh, aright in Jesus. And God, for those who are here that are struggling with Faith, they're struggling with Christianity, they're struggling maybe with the church or religion in general. Or maybe they think that there is a God and they're not sure how it could be just one. 
I pray for them this morning that they would have a better impression of the Bible today, a better impression of your people, and most certainly a more clear understanding of Jesus, what he did, what he came to do, who he was, who he is, and, and what the future holds. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I was uh, leading a retreat for a friend of mine who does campus ministry in the little bitty town of Due West, South Carolina. And I was talking to his college-aged guys. So it was me and this other 40-something guy talking to these 20-year-old guys. And I did a series on what I call the normal Christian life. And we talked about the passages where Paul speaks of the Christian life as being like a treasure, yes, a treasure, but in a jar of clay, having afflictions, um, being hunted down. We talked about a passage where Paul says the Christian life is like being not at the front of a procession, but being at the end of a procession, and actually being called the scum of the earth. Real exciting stuff, right? We talked about the passage where Paul said he had this vision of heaven, this vision of glory, nothing more glorious. It was so glorious, he didn't write a bestseller about it and make a movie, which is fine, maybe. Um, but he said, I couldn't speak about it. I can't explain it. It was so glorious. But to humble him from that, God actually gave him a thorn in his side. Something that exposed him, made him weak. And so I was doing this series, and at the end of one of the talks, um, we had a question and answer session, and this very bubbly young man said, Mr. Gaines, like, I appreciate what you're saying and all, but I'm an optimist. That just doesn't, that just doesn't sound real good to me. That doesn't sound real happy. And I thought... Just wait till you're 40. I don't know. I don't know what else to tell you. There's a glorious side to it, obviously. Um, but it got me thinking about what is realistic for the Christian? What is a normal understanding of what the Christian life is like? Um, is it optimism? Is it pessimism? I would like to rather call it redemptive realism. Where there is redemption, there's glory, there is founded and grounded hope in the truth of the gospel, and there is much sorrow, and there is pain, and there is weakness. And the reason I'd like to, to enter in this today is simply, if you're a Christian, I want to encourage you that what you actually may be going through is not something that should cause you great discontentment and longing for another place and another season of life or hearkening back to another season of life or looking forward to the future when it's not going to be like this. I would actually say in evangelical language that you may absolutely be in the center of God's will. Most likely you're exactly where God wants you. And if you're not a Christian... I would love to try this morning by God's mercy and power to set you free from abnormal, 
unrealistic, unbiblical expectations of what the Christian life looks like. You may look at the church as full of optimism and go, I can never be that. You may look at the church as full of pessimism and go, I don't want that. And what I want you to see this morning, by God's grace, is simply what the normal Christian life looks like. And it's not from me, it's from the Bible. It is from a man who spent 30 plus years of his life planting churches and then pastoring and ministering to those churches. Going around and and planting a church and setting up elders and coming back and, and pastoring and helping shepherd those churches. He is at the end of his life. He is in a jail cell. He is pretty much alone. He is cold. You can look at the end where he actually asked for them to bring him more clothes or a blanket. And so Paul is reflecting in verses 6 through 8 on what I call the three tenses of the normal Christian life. And the first is this, the present tense. Look at verse 6. Paul says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's speaking in the present tense, and he gives us two images. I'm going to start with the second. He says we are being, if you're a Christian, your present life is that you are poured out and that you are put out. The second image is of a boat being put out to sea. He says, the time of my departure has come. It's time for me to depart. It's time for me to go off on a voyage. Paul is looking his death in the eye. And where I want to start this morning is that the normal Christian life involves the reality of dying. It is one of the few voices left in our culture that continues to actually raise the subject of death. Some of you have been affected by death. Some of you live more in the light of death. But the Bible is always reminding us that we are going to die. Youth. Young people. Children. I know what you're being told in school. Because I went to the luncheon for my daughter who is being recruited by all these colleges, and they're telling her all these great things that she can do in life. Not once do they mention, what are you going to be thinking at the end of that life? It's all about this idealistic future. The normal Christian life welcomes death, actually. In several places, Paul says that the prospect of being with Christ is far better. It's far better. Now I want you to think about this for a second because I get excited about the new heavens and the new earth simply because of the new earth part. I get really excited about hiking and running and even building things and maybe being able to do that sort of stuff then. But I want you to take the thing that you think is best in this life. Seriously, and I'm not, this is not the Christian minister that's now going to pounce on those things and say, they're all bad and they're all idols. I'm going to say, take the thing that you enjoy best. Best. That's awesome. God says that being with Christ will be better than that. 
He doesn't say, like, throw it away. And it may be a place for that. We can talk about that later. But what he's saying is it's better. In the last battle, C.S. Lewis writes, Death is the beginning chapter of the great story which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Paul is being put out to sea. The second image he gives us is being poured out. The Old Testament image, obviously, is of an offering or a sacrifice. But in this case, very often when you would take a sacrifice to the altar, you would accompany it with a, 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 some sort of container full of strong wine. Okay, so you would walk up to the altar. Am I still on? You would walk up to the altar and you would take this vessel of wine and you would pour it out at the base of the altar. Now, if some of you are like me, you're practical minded and you're going, why would you waste great wine, right? And I think that's why Paul gives us this image of poured out because the first thing about it is that if you're going to be a Christian, the normal Christian life is being poured out out. Very often you are going to reflect on your day, on that conversation that seems to go nowhere. You are going to reflect on your life and go, it seems sometimes like it's just a waste. I did eight loads of laundry. It feels like I just wasted my day. I didn't do all those things they told me in that college lunch and I was going to do. Some of your friends will look at your life and they'll think it looks like such a waste of time and energy. Things that people don't understand that are confusing. But it will also, the image obviously of a sacrifice is of great cost. Being poured out means that your life will involve being given over for other people being poured out, spent, tired. At the end of your rope, is how my mother would always say it, wrung out like a dish rag, hitting the floor. We, The gospel is that Jesus is poured into us. He is given over for us. He gives Himself for us. He dies so that we may live. And Paul is saying the overflow of that is that we are poured out for others. We receive, but then we perceive the needs of others and we give back. It comes to us, but it comes through us. Jesus was poured out. We will be poured out. And can I tell you what a struggle that can be? Because Martin Luther said that our lives are built with a curve toward ourselves. The gospel is God's curve toward us. And as that gets in your bones, your life starts becoming for other people, dying, losing, sacrifice, giving up your time, giving up your energy, giving up your money. Let me give you a couple examples of this real quick. This means for the Christian... A lot of your life, seriously, may be cleaning up after other people. 
who you've tried to teach over and over and over how to clean up. That garbage is always full in our bathroom. It is being poured out for relationships. People that aren't Christians, that don't seem to want your love, but continuing to love them and being poured out for them, it may mean actually having to say no to some things that will cost you your reputation. It may mean that tiny ethical matter at the office that you have to say, no, we can't just overlook that, is going to cost you. And see, in fact, if you're not a Christian, you understand any form of training, whether it's military, whether it's exercise, involves being poured out, involves sacrifice is the word that we use. I was reading this book or this magazine. If you know me at all, you know that my pastime is uh, mountain biking. And I was reading my favorite magazine and they had just reflected on this man's death. And there was a man that wrote in about it and he it actually won the letter of the month that month. I never win the letter of the month when I write to the magazine. But this guy said this, and listen to this quote. This is fascinating. He said, Jeff's death reminded me that our time is finite. And it should be spent doing what you love. For me, that includes worshiping at the altar of sacrifice. Call it what you will. Paying the flesh tax. Going to the pain cave. We have all suffered for our joy. We have all suffered for our joy. The gospel for a Christian is your joy. You don't suffer to get it. You don't suffer to atone. You don't give up so that you receive. You give because you have received. You've been died for. You've been loved. You've, your sin has been atoned. And that makes your sacrifice not for yourself, but for other people. Let me just ask you before we move on. The normal Christian life, involves being put out and poured out. What are you being poured out for? And may I ask you even more specifically, is it deep down to take away your sin? Is it to take away your sin? C.H. Spurgeon said, Sin will be taken away by nothing less potent than the blood of Jesus. No matter how much you give up and sacrifice, it will not save you. The second thing is that the normal Christian life in the past tense, look at verse 7, involves fighting, it involves a race, and it involves keeping. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Very more, much more concisely here, Paul compares the Christian life as he reflects on his life he says, I fought the good fight. He says the Christian life, the normal Christian life involves a fight. Now I want you to think about that for a second. What is it that you get fired up about? What is it that you fight about? Well, if you're like me and my wife, we fight about buying another dog collar. 
That's not the good fight. Paul says, you're all fighting. Are you fighting the good fight? That begins to free you from all those drama, gossipy conversations that we want to get into. And all those, and be a different person. It says, this is the fight. Secondly, it's a race. He says he's finished the race. Hebrews 12.1 says that every single believer has a race course set out for them. Now I want you to think about that for a second. That is unbelievably beautiful. Do you know why? I got to help out with a 5K last year. I got to help map out the course on the trail. Not just a road, but in the woods. And as we were doing it, we could envision people doing this and coming up this hill and going down and going around. And it was this glorious thing. Don't ask me why I'm so excited about it. But it was just beautiful thinking people are going to enjoy and delight in this. Yes, it's going to be hard. There will be valleys. There will be hills. All that cliche stuff, right? But it's true. And I get to be a part of setting it out for them. Do you know that your loving, powerful, heavenly Father has your very life marked out for you? And though it involves a fight, He is good. He is good. We had a cross-country banquet and all the girls would get up and do their senior speeches and of course they'd cry and talk for hours like I do. And Then they would, you know, this and that. And my daughter did it. But then the guys would get up there and kind of shuffle their feet. Well, this one guy came prepared. He had three points. And this was his first point and this is how brief it was. I'm glad I ran cross country. And this is why. Number one, life is hard. Number two, racing is hard. Number three, racing is a lot like life. Thank you. <laughs> I thought, just said a lot. If you are a Christian, as we talked about in our community group a couple weeks ago, we were looking at Job, and, and one lady brought out the passage that stuck with me the most was that Job says, even though you slay me, Lord. Imagine having Christianity explored slash God will slay you class. Um, it's hard. Jesus says it like this. If you're a Christian, not if you don't bear fruit. If you don't bear fruit, he throws you away. He says, if you do bear fruit, he will then prune you. All right, I want to bear fruit so I can just be pruned. I have a branch. But look, this is what the Bible says. And that's why it's so amazing that Paul says, I've kept the faith. It's not that he's boasting. Look, if you go through 2 Timothy, you will see at least six names of people who left the faith who did not keep the faith. Phagelaus, or I can't even pronounce it, and Hermogenes turned away. Hymenaeus and Philetus swerved from the truth. Demas left because he was in love with the present world. 
Alexander the coppersmith opposed me. White collar and blue collar opposition. He's saying, so many don't keep the faith. And I think this is so encouraging. As, as a friend of mine said, he was excited that we're in a post-Christian culture because now you actually have to keep the faith. You can't fake it anymore. Paul is staring his death in the eye and he's reflecting and he's going, God has kept me and I've kept the faith. And so if you're a Christian and your life is difficult, it is like a fight, it is like a hard race, and you feel poured out, you again know, I don't think you could be out of the center of God's will, by the way, but you're in the center of God's will. You're exactly where God wants you. So rejoice. I think at least be encouraged. I can remember several years ago when I went through a very tough period because the guy that married me, my campus minister, was in the process of not keeping the faith. He was letting go of the faith and he was not responding to people who were reaching out to him. In fact, he was leaving his wife for another woman. And I remember sitting down with him at lunch and I just couldn't believe it. And I said, so you're, you two are together? And he said, yeah. And then it was like our roles were reversed. Like when I was in college and he was having to ask me about my dating relationship and ask those hard questions, right? I was asking him, so like you two are together. And he said, mm, not really, but it's hard. And he smiled. And everything in me sunk. Because the, the second most important person in the Christian faith to me was dropping the faith. Now I want you to compare that with an elderly retired minister in our denomination in our region that I sat down with three weeks ago and I went to him about some different things and for the first 15 minutes with a beam in his eye he talked about the joy it was taking care of his elderly wife who has early onset dementia. And he was smiling. And I started crying. I don't even care what else we talk about. I need to see that. I need to see someone keeping the faith. What's the application? Real quickly, especially if you are young, if you're not in a community group of this church, Please get in one. Don't let sin and Satan make all these reasons for you. Get around older people in this church. Get around people who have kept the faith. Don't be like the young hipsters. They're great. I'm around hipsters all the time. But what I really find about hipsters is that you get to know them. They really want to be around older people. They're just scared and don't know how to do it. So older people reach out to the hipsters in your midst. Last thing, real quick. Paul gives us the future tense. How does Paul hold it together? How is, he, how is the faith kept? He says, verse 8, Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. Paul says there is a crown of righteousness waiting for you if you are a Christian. Now what he's not doing is holding out a carrot and saying, come get this crown of righteousness 
and it will all, you know, just work hard, work hard, pour out, you'll get the crown. That's not what he's saying. If you understand the gospel at all, what you understand is that what we deserve is not a crown of righteousness, but a crown of thorns. But Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, comes to this earth and lives a life of perfect obedience and endures the death of the cross, takes that crown of thorns, and instead gives us what we don't deserve, a crown of righteousness. And Paul says that crown, that declarative truth about me, will one day be a reality. And you're going, I don't get real excited thinking about righteousness. Yes, you better. And yes, you do. I promise you, you do. Think about it this way. When my children asked me 15 years ago what I wanted for Christmas, I still wanted kind of cool things. You know what I asked for now? I want my children to reasonably obey me. Do you know how much happier things are and peaceful? And they're like, well, Dad, we want a reasonably obedient dad. Okay. But see, we long for righteousness. Imagine what your workplace would look like if people treated each other with dignity and kindness and love and told the truth and didn't cut corners and didn't steal and all greed and injustices were gone and there were no more war, there were no more battles. Imagine all of that gone. Paul says we will receive it. That day is coming and that's why he starts verse 1 and he ends this book in section with Jesus' appearing. He says if, if this is how you know you're a Christian. You have a growing love in you for Jesus' return. And not just His appearing then, but you want pieces of that now. You want to know Him and be with Him now. You want Him to appear to you now. Paul writes in Corinthians that when we behold the Lord's glory, that's what we're tasting and seeing now. Because it keeps us. Last thing really quick on this. Some of you may be thinking like I've always. I grew up in a church that you never knew if you were saved and I walked the aisle six times and I was baptized 40 times and not that many, but I, I still struggle with assurance. Like, how do I know when Jesus, is re, Jesus reappears that I'll be okay with Him? Like, how do I know I'm in? How, you know, and then and the Bible talks about, you know, God, the first thing He's going to do is judge us. Well, I'm like, that doesn't seem to be something I'd love. Look, listen how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4. He says, when Jesus returns... He will bring to light things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of our hearts. So in other words, Jesus will take an Instagram of your heart and expose it. He'll put that on Instagram. He will go beyond, He, he will get your heart and He's going to put it on Facebook. And if you're like me, you're going, okay, um, that smells condemnation. Listen to how Paul finishes this verse. Once Jesus does that, then each one will receive not condemnation, but commendation. 
How in the world is that possible? That's the gospel. That's what you need to keep asking. That's why you go to Sunday school. That's why you go to community group. That's why you, that's why you have other Christians. What does that mean? How do we know this is true? Because of who's returning. Because of who's reappearing. Because of who's in control of this. Because of who ran the race. Who kept the good fight. Who finished it. Who was poured out for you. Let's pray. Lord, I had a cute illustration to end with, but my voice is trailing. And it's probably for the better because we want to end with Jesus. And may he be displayed before us in all of his beauty and glory. And may he go into our hearts and come out of our hearts. And may he encourage and grow us and draw those, Lord, who are outside of him. May they be brought in even today in Jesus' name. Amen.